All right, well, good morning, all. Uh, so one thing that I enjoy about um, teaching here at this church, especially that uh, maybe is not afforded some teachers at other churches, is that I know that this church is a church that cares about children, especially participating in the worship service. So I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, Ruby May, in the very back. Hi, honey. And I, I get to see her little eyes look at me as I'm proclaiming God's truth. And that is one of the most beautiful things as a dad and as a uh, person who enjoys and feels uh, called to teaching, they get to experience. So I'm just glad that as a church, you all, and that we are committed to children worshiping in the community of God. So just uh, praise God for that. Um, today, I want to uh, talk about Genesis 3. The title of this teaching is God's will or God's word will endure. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. Uh, we'll be looking at a passage that has sort of captivated the imagination of both non-Christians and Christians alike, and that is the fall of our first parents, the headwaters of humanity, Adam and Eve. Uh, this narrative especially um, is, is helpful in giving a framework for why do we experience what we do today, especially in Tuesday. We're going to talk about evil, um, and, or Greg Kokel is going to talk about evil and evil and suffering and God's um, sovereignty in relation to that, but that's not where I'm going. Today, um, I want to talk about God's Word. So um, many books have been written, much ink has been spilled. Um, many people have exegeted and have preached sermons on Genesis 3, so I confess I'm not offering any new revelatory teaching about the fall. I, rather, what I want to do is just to reaffirm uh, God, the sufficiency and supremacy of God's word for everything, for, for our lives, for, for other people's lives, for especially God's church, and especially as we look towards the life, death, and resurrection of, um, of Jesus taking place on the Easter weekend in a few weeks. So let me go ahead and pray. Um, before that, let me read the passage aloud. And um, if, you, if you could just consider, maybe for some of you, as I'm seeing people coming in, could you just scoot to the in, in parts of the, of, the, of the seats so that we can make sure if people are coming in that they have a spot. So for those that you are kind of in the middle, would you just scoot in one while I read this? Um, <clears throat> now it says this in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree or the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put anemone between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now skip down to verse 20 there. And he says, The man called his wife, wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam, for his wife, and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live for forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that you have given us a beautiful day in which we can enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we also are thankful that you have given your word that nourishes us, that helps us perceive truth, what is right and what is wrong. And ultimately, Lord, that your word is sufficient, that it is to have supremacy over our lives, Lord, that if you say, that if we love you, that we will obey your commandments. Father, I just pray for our time together, that it would be a time of learning and if appropriate conviction. And ultimately, Lord, that at the end of the day, that this would just be another means for praising the name of Christ and not seeing the sermon as the meat of the service, but rather all of it together, working in partnership with one another so that we may glorify you. Help us, Father, to do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> what is our church known for? What is this church, uh, Lion and Lamb, known for? I asked that question because it was a question that was posed to myself and Larry Stewart and Mike and Kathy Halpin and Bethany Golden now at a biblical counseling conference that we went to uh, last February. The pastor asked the question, what is your church known for? Meaning if you were to go out today and to ask one of your co-workers, one of your friends, one of your family members, what is this church known for? What's the response that they would give? And that really just kind of worked in me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still new to this church in some sense. Um, you know, we were, we were here four and a half or four years ago and now back. And so, you know, still fleshing that out. And so I was kind of turning that over in my mind. And each night at this conference, what we would do is we would sit around at a dinner table, the five of us together, and we would talk about what sort of things that we had learned at this biblical counseling conference. And so I just posed that lingering question um, to the group. What is this church known for? And one person uh, responded, I thought, quite helpfully. And I, think it's, and I think it's a good point. He says, I think our church would be known for taking God's word seriously. And that's where the people say amen. That's a good thing. I, I believe that to be true, that we would be known for taking God's word seriously, both in what it reveals about the character and nature and work of God in creation, but also in how it rules over our lives. However, 
what I think Genesis 3 uh, highlights and what I want to talk about today is that despite our verbal and written affirmations about taking God's word seriously, we still struggle with doubting the sufficiency and supremacy of God's word over and for our lives. I think ultimately what is revealed in Adam and Eve's heart that the serpent capitalizes is, is this question, and I think it's a question that's still relevant for us today, which is, does God really have our best interest in mind? Is God holding something out for us, something that we, we want that he's already said that you don't need? Is God and his word really calling me to that sort of life, kind of like what we were seeing on Radical? Is that what he's calling me to? Is it that sort of obedience? Is it really a message of hope? Is it really a, a message of grace? And is God really a loving, righteous, holy, and gracious um, God as his word states? That, that question on a day-to-day sort of practical notion, uh, I think we struggle with. So on one hand, orthodoxy, we would say, right thinking, yes, God's word is true, it's sufficient, it's supreme. We would, we'd, we'd affirm that at any day of the week, at any moment. But practically speaking, perhaps our lives don't look like that. We affirm with our mouths the truth of God's word, yet to day-to-day living are tempted to act as if his word has no place in our lives so long as it accords or doesn't accord to our own purposes and our ambition and our own will. So um, the idea there is that, you know, as long as God's word affirms what I want to do, then I'm okay with it. But the minute it starts calling me out to some different type of life, then, I, I, then I'm going to look for a reason to justify God is holding something out, that that's not what he's calling me to. So in short, we struggle to believe that God's word is true, and in doing so, cheat ourselves from fruitful, joy-inducing, God-honoring living just like Adam and Eve did. So this is where I want to go. I believe this. This is what the passage is stating, that because God's will or word will endure, we must trust him. God really does have our best interest in mind, that his word is to be obeyed and to be submitted to, and by doing so, that we are ultimately freed to live lives that are just flourishing. That churches, when they obey God's word and follow God's word, that they flourish, relationally will flourish. So today I just want to make three points, and they're outlined in your study sheet. And it's this, this is the first one. Since God's word will endure, we must obey his commands. Prior to chapter 3. Genesis 1 and 2 began, God just speaks things into existence by the mere power of his words. He speaks entire galaxies into existence. But that same powerful Lord who who orders the sun and the moon and the stars and the waters of the earth is able to create Adam and Eve in this beautiful, garden, luscious garden for covenantal relationship both with God himself but also with each other. Adam and Eve had it all. They had purpose. They had significance. They had intimacy. They had relationship. Yet despite having this, all their needs met, we read in those first few verses that they quickly begin to doubt the goodness and trustworthiness of God's character and his word. Despite God's declaration of his creation being good, in chapter concluding at creation at rest, we see early on in chapter 3 that things do not sit well. And so what happens? There's a snake that enters the scene in verse 1. 
Now, um, some people will, will kind of scoff at the ridiculousness of a talking snake, right? You've heard, maybe heard that by uh, critics. They'll say, you know, who, who could ever believe in a talking snake? And personally, I mean, that's, that's hard to believe, right? Like, has anybody been out in the wilderness and seen a snake and it wants to have a cup of tea with you? No, it's ridiculous. And what's funny about that kind of, that kind of view is that they don't and somehow pretend or don't know that that would just be just abs- absurd to Moses and the ancient and real Israelites as it is for us today that they were able to gather that at the end of the day, snakes don't speak. And so therefore, there is something that needs to be noticed about this snake. Something's going on much more deceitful and dark than, what's, than what appears. And the snake does speak. And what it says, it affirms its own dark presence in the fact that it questions God's authority. This is what it said. Did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? Now in the Hebrew, uh, that is sort of expressed in a way of somewhat of a question, somewhat of an astonishing uh, sort of question at at the same time. So really what the snake is saying is, did did God really say that? Like, would he, would he really say that? That you shouldn't eat from that tree? The serpent is questioning God's authority. As one commentator notes, it communicates, his question and, uh, communicates an unreasonableness to God's commandment. Of course, the serpent also purposely adds to God's word. God never said that. God never said that they're not allowed to eat of any tree. And so what we start to realize is that this snake is no ordinary snake, that it is, in fact, as the biblical story unfolds, it is Satan, it is the king of, God, king of adversaries, it is the prince of darkness, that this is, this is the enemy. And so he questions God's word, he questions whether or not God is holding out something from Adam and Eve. Notice that in that verse 2, up until this point, what's, how's God being addressed? The Lord God. How is he addressed by the serpent and then also Eve? Just God. In the Hebrew, it's the Lord God or Yahweh Elohim. And now they're just doing the impersonal kind of generic name for God as they refer to um, the Lord himself. And what that's doing is that's showing that uh, the serpent is questioning the covenantal relational characteristics of God and that ultimately Eve will do the same thing. So look at her response in verse 3. She responds that we must not touch it. You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's not what God said. God did not say that. So look at the progression of, of doubt that's going on. There are the seeds of disobedience that are being sown. First, by questioning the truth and trustworthiness of God's word and character. Then reinforced by distorting it. And finally, what happens is that Adam and Eve will totally abandon God's word for a shadier substitute, which is really just a great picture. And it's not a great, it's an unfortunate picture of sin in our own lives, right? We, we start with this temptation. We ask, did God really say that? Is he really wanting me to not do that? Is he really wanting me to go forgive that person or ask for forgiveness from that person? Is he, um, is he holding something out from me? You know, I, I'm looking at this, this, this thing over here. It looks great, and, and I want it, but I know God's word may question that. But is, is he holding back something that only I know about myself to be true? And so, just like them, we replace it with a shadier substitute, something that's artificial. We abandon God's word for what might please ourselves. 
They believe the lie that God is withholding something better and something that they should be entitled to. Despite their love and covenantal relationship that they're enjoying with the Lord, they would rather in that moment question and disobey the truthfulness and trustworthiness of the creator of all things. Now, just as a point of of application, I think that the act of obedience, and this is something that I've hit on before over and over again, the act of obedience is often tethered to a deep love, a relational love with the Lord. I think that's what we see in Scripture. I think Psalms and the book of Proverbs really uh, hits that, that those who ultimately love the Lord are ones who seek to obey His Word. And then in John, uh, Chapter 14, verse 23, the Lord Jesus states with his own lips, those who, ever, who love me will obey my commandments. That is to say that genuine relational love for Jesus is foundational to obedience. Or better put, true love does not exist where obedience, true obedience is not present. Now this is true, I think, of um, relationally speaking, this is, this is true. Um, Here's an, here's an example, and I've used this example before, but I think it's a really nice example, and it helps for me to, to kind of put legs on it. My wife will make a list for me, and she'll create a list, a honeydew list, all right? Say, take out the trash, uh, pick up your clothes, and hang this picture. Now, two of those tasks that she just, she just listed, those are just tasks that human beings have to do just as responsible uh, responsible, disciplined human beings. We have to take out the trash. You have to pick up your stuff. You just can't leave it all over the place, right? So those are just two things that I just do because that's, that's what we do. Those are chores that we have to do. But that third one, that picture that needs to be hung, I don't hang that picture because it needs to be hung, in my opinion, right? It may or may not need to be hung. Does it look good there? It probably, I don't know. If it was me, it, like, and Grace could attest to this, that we'd have... Random college posters on our wall. It'd be, our, our house would look like a nightmare. It'd look very 25-ish. I don't know, because I just don't think about those things very much. But why do I o- o- sort of obey or, or seek out to do the hanging of the picture? Because I love my wife. And relationships, w- when we love each other, we are going to be easily uh, willing to obey the, the, the will and desires of the person that we love. And the same is true about God, that somehow in our society, we sort of think that obedience, we just chafe at it. You know, like, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm my own person. You know, I think the way I am. I think for myself. I act for myself. I make my own, I make my own chances in this world. And, that, and there's something to be said that's good about that, right? Like at the end of the day, like, you know, there's a sense of autonomy that is good, But what happens is that we start to dislike obedience to the sense that we forget the fact that God's word, obeying God's word is an absolute pleasure. It's not just a duty that we should love practicing God's word in our lives and in our relationships and in our church. And if you read the Old Testament, that every time God's people commits himself to doing and believing and practicing God's word, they flourish. They, don't, they, they flourish spiritually, relationally, culturally. There's this, an amazing amount of flourishment going on. And so I just, I just want to say that obedience isn't, not only is it something that we're called to do, it's something that we should love doing. We should love obeying God's word because 
we may believe that God is holding out his best for us, but in reality, God's best, or God has his best interest in our minds. That God's word is our best for us. Moving on from this, and point number two, and um, starting in verse 13, it says, or I have this, because God's word is true, we must hope in what he promises. We see in verses 8 through 13, the man and the woman, once they realize the shame and their nakedness, they quickly sew together fig leaves. They, they quickly make these garments to hide their nakedness. And the Lord God, a God of order, and this is, this is interesting to point out, the serpent goes to Eve to undermine and question God's authority. He starts with Eve, and what does the Lord do? He goes to Adam. He holds Adam responsible. He, ha- he holds Adam culpable for the, the woman and, uh, and man's sin. So not only is God sort of reaffirming the hierarchy, the gracious hierarchy that he has instituted, and the man lovingly being placed over the, over the wife, he's also holding Adam culpable for their sin, for their treachery. And so what does Adam say? You're right, God, I've blown it. I've messed up. Forgive me. No. He offers one of the most pathetic statements that we can ever read in all of Scripture, right? That woman... You gave me. She's the one that made me do it. He blame shifts. And so it's easy to, to, to get angry at Adam, and we should. That's a, our affection should be guided in that direction, but we'd be mistaken to only see Adam's pride and not see it in ourselves. Right? That, that pride that Adam manifests can easily be disclosed in our own hearts. I, we fight that with ourselves, with our, our spouse, our family and friends, right? We get called out on something and what do we do? We blame it on circumstances. We blame it on somebody else's reaction. We blame shift so that we don't have to own up to our own disobedience. The union and communion enjoyed in chapter 2 is contrasted with the delusion and disunion present in chapter 3. But God sees through us and he sees through Adam. He knows Adam's heart. He knows our heart. Adam neither trusted God nor his word. He, he felt that he didn't have to obey God, that there was no consequences for his actions. So God, a God who cannot lie, has to judge them. And what's interesting, I, I just not uh, jotted that out on, on your notes, that there's a verse in, in Genesis 5 that you might want to look up, because in Genesis 2, God says that on the day that you eat the fruit, you will die. And in Genesis 5, when we're reading the genealogies, what does it say when he gives the account for all those uh, men who lived and, and then they died? Is God true? You better believe it. God is, is, is true to his word. It's something to be taken seriously. But what I want to look at is, and today, there's much I could talk about within this, this um, judgment that's offered to both God, man, and woman. I want to focus in on Genesis 3.15. This is what the Lord says. I will put anemone between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and he shall bruise your heel. Now this isn't talking about a physical relationship between snakes and human beings. So don't just go around cutting off the heads of snakes, little gardener snakes, because you read this passage, right? That's, that's the wrong conclusion. As scary as they are to me. Seriously, I'm, I, I do not like snakes as scary as they are. That's not what it's commanding. Rather, 
He's making a promise that one day God, through this seed, singular, is going to do away with, address the evil that the serpent has continued to produce from that point on. As one person notes, humanity is now divided into communities, the elect who love God and the reprobate who love self. Thus, the natural question that Moses is trying to get into us is, what seed are you? Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees who think that they, they know the teachings of the Lord, he, he calls them a, a viperous group, brood of vipers. Now, he might have been alluding to this passage. Don't know. Don't say, doesn't say specifically. But that, that it emphasizes the fact that there are, there are those who are willingly opposed to God's will and who have aligned themselves in their disobedience to, to the serpent and then the, the one day in which God will restore those things. And so I'm going to get on a little bit of a, I might start talking even louder than I'm currently talking because I get really excited about this. All right. Genesis 3.15. The seed singular is a theme that I believe runs throughout not only the entire book of Genesis, but in some ways is manifesting itself in the entire, entire books of the Old Testament. At every turn of the corner, the seed being threatened, people are saying, what is God going to do about that promise? He has promised that one day Satan will be destroyed. How is he going to come good on his promises? And the Old Testament is in my opinion, the unfolding story of God's redemptive work in history and finally bringing about that seed through Abraham, eventually through his, his offspring, into eventually David, King David, and eventually its fullness in Jesus Christ. So at every moment of the story, there is always a promise of hope that God will one day destroy the powers of wickedness. And we find that fully embodied in the life, ministry, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. A while back, I was listening to an interview with uh, J.R. Tolkien. And he said in this interview, it's a really funny interview, but he's talking about what, how he ended up writing The Hobbit. And after a little anecdotal story, he, he says this, that most enthralling narratives are those of pilgrimage or journey of an object. Now, I don't want to stretch the analogy too far here, but I I find that so true to be uh, what we see in the biblical story is how is God going to bring about this promise of a seed crushing the head of the serpent? And we see that in Christ. And what that means is, you know, we hope it almost has this generic type of tone to it. And what I want us to do maybe is restore a biblical view of hope that just, that just captures our, our imagination, that encourages us in a way that when, when God says, in, or Jesus says in the Great Commission at the very end of Matthew 28, he says that I will never leave you, that because God cannot lie and God does bring about his promises and that God is faithful to his promises, that when he promises that he will never leave you, he will never leave you. So if you're anxious, if you're fearful, if you're angry, if you're depressed, if you're sad, whatever, God will never leave you. And there will be a day in which we will see the, the final, f- final fulfillment of this promise in which all 
of Satan's forces and powers will be put under the feet of King Jesus. And that is something worth hoping in. Not how much money can I accumulate, not, much how, not how influential I am in my, my sphere of, of influence. Not that I don't put my hope in that. I put my hope in, in Jesus and what he's doing. And God's word is fundamentally a story of hope. The second thing, that this is a different caveat to this, is that if, if God's word is as a hope, as a hopeful story that I think is kind of unleashed in Genesis 3.15, how are you at telling that story? Just maybe as a gut check. If somebody was going to ask you, you share the gospel, or you're talking to somebody and having a conversation about the Bible, and they said, okay, two or three sentences, what do you think the Bible's all about? What would you say? Would you... Um, uh, would you say that? Would you, not, would you say nothing? I'm not meaning to be critical, but I think that, and this is the thing that I've, I've been hitting on with the college group, is that the reason why we don't share the gospel, we don't talk about the Bible, is because when that question is posed to us, we have no idea what to say. And so, uh, just as a means of talking about it as a family and as, as couples and relationships, think about how would you articulate the biblical story? What would you say? How would you, how would you um, articulate it? And, and just by doing that, it just makes us more comfortable because ultimately what we're doing is we're inviting people into a better story, right? The gospel is a better story than make as much money as you can because you die or have as much fun as you can because this is all there is. The gospel speaks more to our issues as human beings, and so we need to have a right view of God's word and, and knowing that it's a, a word of hope. Finally, in, in verse 20 through 24, we see that because God's word will endure, we must relish his gracious provisions. As much as God's word serves as a right way of thinking about hope, it is also a story that fundamentally involves the graciousness of the Lord. Notice that the Lord never addresses the blasphemy that the serpent and Eve mentioned in those prior verses, he never brings it up. Because why? God is never, never has to give an account for himself. He never does. Right? And every time somebody brings an account to God, he always flips it on them. Who are you to doubt my goodness and my graciousness? He doesn't bring it up. And for us, we, have to, we, we realize that we are not placing God on trial, that he doesn't give an account to us. But what we're really surprised about and this is, this is the, kind of the shocker, is that God just doesn't obliterate Adam and Eve and just scrap all of creation and start over. No, he, he clothes them in loincloths that are suitable for living outside of God's good garden. He's gracious to them. So the grace of God, the grace that he provides, comes in the form, the form of loincloths loin and coverings so that they can be exposed to the judgment that they have to face because of their disobedience. So what do we conclude? Well, I think uh, there's, there's two things that, um, first is that we have to recognize that God is gracious, that his story is a story of grace, but also we have to learn, we have to know that we have to own the consequences of our own sin and disobedience, that despite, there's, despite the graciousness of God that's mentioned in those, that verse of providing loincloths, at the end of the day, they are expelled from the garden. They are not allowed to leave there. And they do eventually die. That there are genuine consequences for our disobedience. 
This makes me think of the story of Eustace in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I mean, I'm sure there's a, quite a few of you that have read that story, but it's about this, this story, uh, especially is about a greedy boy who falls asleep next to his treasure, only to wake up a uh, dragon. And then there's that, that bracelet that he was wearing when he falls asleep next to his treasure. It becomes this big dragon leg. And so it's tightening down on his arm and he's in an extreme amount of pain. And he has this, <laughs> yeah, this fat dragon leg. I love how I wrote that. Um, and so Aslan, he shows up to the scene. And Aslan is the, kind of the God figure, the Christ figure of this, this series, arrives telling him that the only relief from this pain is to remove his dragon skin. And so Eustace kind of confused. What does he start doing? He starts scraping his skin off. And every time he scrapes his skin off, he, he, he reveals a new layer of dragon skin that's even more hideous than the skin before that. And it's at that point that, that he realizes that he can't do anything. And this is how uh, C.S. Lewis describes the scene. You will have to let me undress you, says Aslan the lion. So desperate was Eustace, even his fear of Aslan um, and his claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on his back. Laying anxious on the ground, here is what Eustace felt. The very first tear, tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself, the other three times, only they hadn't hurt, and there it was lying on the grass only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, a smooth and soft as, peeled, or soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing... I found out that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I had turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. Now, Lewis is highlighting God's grace, but also the restorative discipline that comes with, often accompanies grace. And, and, and why I bring that up is, is because oftentimes we have a loose view of grace, that we ha- there's grace, and we're given grace in the gospel and that there's no consequences for the ways in which we've disobeyed God and hurt other people. And so, you know, we're feeling that sort of chastisement, that discipline from the Lord. And we say, you know, I don't understand why you're doing this. Why are you holding my toes to the fire? And part of it is because you're, we're not learning. We act as if there's no consequences for our disobedience. But what's the other half of that? Grace. God doesn't turn us away, his, his, his children, his, his people. He doesn't turn them away. He restores them. He, he protects them. He, he brings them back into fellowship. And while Adam and Eve, they had to leave the garden, they were still graciously given the work that God had originally proclaimed, which was to keep and work the ground. And these new claws that weren't, these clothes that were no longer the pathetic loin coverings made out of fig leaves, God was gracious to them and we should be praising God for the graciousness that he shows not only them, but he still shows us today. 
And for some of you here, while uh, some of you need to be perhaps corrected, and including myself in the way in which God disciplines us, even in moments of grace, for some of you, you just need to know that God is gracious. And, and you need to be freed from this thinking that, that you, can, you can please God, that either you can't please God, and so you give up hope, or you can please God, and so you fill your life with activities you think that, you, that are pleasing to God. And, and what's important to know is that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less or any more than he does in Christ. Because we are united in Christ, he does not love you any more, and he cannot love you any less than he does currently in Jesus. So, Grace is a means, and we see all these things working together, obedience, hope, grace, working together. It, it helps us know the importance of, of, and empowers us to be under the authority of God's word in our lives and as a church. And so I want to um, close with a bit of a personal story. Um, I didn't really do a good job of, of drumming or hitting that drum of, you all need to go to the biblical counseling conference and discipleship is very important in this church. So let me just say that explicitly. You all that can need to go to this biblical counseling conference next February. And that's not something that Mike will just affirm, that Larry and I, we we could easily hit on that and Kathy as well. So I want to give a little bit of my own experience in this. It happened in February. We went, and this was on the cusp of our children, both Ruby and Samuel, being sick. I was coming off of a respiratory infection Samuel had an ear infection, so I had low expectations for this conference. I just did, you know, just had low expectations. I was like, this is great. I know I need to disciple people. I, need to, I know I need to counsel people. We'll see what happens. You know, and so we get there, and we're, we're seated, and God's starting to work in you, and you're like, man, this is awesome. You know, I'm learning how to counsel people, and, you know, and now I can see how these tools apply, and this is going to be, this is going to be great, and I'm glad I'm here, and, you know, all those moments that usually accompany being at a, a conference like that. And then as they, the week wears on, they start talking about anxiety. And they start talk, talking about anger. And they start talking about forgiveness. And they start talking about fear. And I'm like, wait a second. How is suddenly my life becoming under the lens or the microscope of God's word? As they're, as they're teaching on God's word about how God's word is fully able to address the issues of life, I find in those moments being completely convicted because I see the areas in which I'm not obeying God's word, that, I, that I've either do not trust him in those moments or in those areas of my life where I believe that God is somehow holding out his best for me, and I'm, I'm, I'm just convicted. But as, as that conviction wears on to repentance, and I, and, and I have to go, you know, the, on, it was just, it was incredible how I was being hit over the hammer. As I'm moving from repentance, I realize in hope, that God has not left me there. And God has not left us there. Right? That we are a new creation. That we are putting off the old man. Putting on the new man. And in that, he is not leaving us the way we are. That if we cooperate, that if we submit ourselves to his word, that he continues to work in us. So that we have a hope for how we address the issues of fear and anxiety and worry in our lives. And ultimately, God's graciousness was there. He abounded in graciousness. Every time that I admitted that I had blown it and that there was hope that I could change, I could rest in the fact that Christ has satisfied my sin on the cross and so that I am free to obey, that I'm free to love God. 
And so this conference was just as much about God working in me and exposing me and, and using his word to expose my own sinfulness as it was about learning to counsel others. And so God's word provides adequate and appropriate hope and grace for our lives, but it's also a deep privilege to obey the word of God. He is not holding out his best, that he is not only worth following, but his best is revealed to us in his word. Though we now live in the shadow of the fall and we long to go back to Eden, God's word will endure. It is worth obeying, it's worth hoping in, and it is worth embracing and relishing that grace that he provides in it. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this day in which we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, would you help us to now worship you, move from the teaching of the word, now to praising you for your word and for your work in Christ. Father, would it not be about how we sound right now, how we feel right now, about what we have going on in our lives? All those things might be true, Lord. But I do pray that we can just worship in a way that is honoring to you as a body of Christ. Lord, for those that may not know you, Lord, I pray that you would continue to work in them, that they would see that only you have a hope worth hoping in that is revealed in your word. Thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.